This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today we'll be talking about eye complaints. This is something that we see a lot in the ED, so it's important that we get it right. Today we'll talk about the major categories of eye complaints, how to diagnose them, and how to make sure we don't miss the big things. This is a huge topic and will be a long podcast, so I can't cover every eye condition, but we'll review the most common eye complaints and the ones that we can't miss. One more thing, sorry for the long hiatus since the last episode. I've had a few projects come up recently that have taken me away from the podcast, but I'm back and ready for the new year. Stay tuned in the next few weeks and months for more about these projects, but for now, I will be shooting for two episodes a month, one regular episode and one episode of Essential Evidence. So let's get started. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. The first thing to do is to make sure to read the triage note and check for the visual acuity. You can think of the visual acuity as the vital sign of the eye. The visual acuity should be done when the patient is in the triage area. If the visual acuity wasn't done already, make sure to have someone do it or do it yourself. A lot of ERs have visual acuity posters hung up on the wall at various places, or you can use an iPhone app called the iChart. This is a free app that is available on the iPhone App Store and I'm sure it's available for Android as well. It's really easy to use and can help you do a visual acuity without leaving the patient's room. All you do is open the app, hold it at the foot of the bed, and use it like a regular eye chart. While it may not be as accurate as an exam in an optometrist's office, it will help you get a rough estimate of the patient's visual acuity and, more importantly, if there are any large differences in visual acuity between each eye. Even cooler, you can press a button and the eye chart scrambles to random letters so you can make sure the patient isn't just remembering what they just read. So it's a pretty cool app. So when you're actually doing the visual acuity, if the patient's vision is worse than 20 over 200 and the patient can't even see the large E on the eye chart, then find out whether they can at least see your fingers, light, or motion. Now what are you supposed to do if the patient has poor vision at baseline and doesn't have their glasses or contacts for whatever reason. There is an easy solution to this. Get a pinhole viewer. This looks like an eye shield that you use to cover the eye for an eye exam, but it has a bunch of little holes punched in it. You have the patient put this right up against their eye, and it helps focus the light on the back of their eye. This instantly gives the patient 20-20 vision for the purposes of checking a visual acuity. In my experience, these pinhole viewers are hard to find in the ED, And if you do find one, they don't stay found for long. I'm not sure why there is such a black market in pinhole viewers, but they seem to never be around when you need one. The quick solution to this is to take an 18-gauge needle and poke a hole in a file card or a piece of cardboard or thick paper. Have the patient use this as a pinhole viewer, and it should work just fine. Before we move on to the chief complaint, there is one little pearl for when you take any tests like the shelf exam or the in-service exam. The question usually goes like this. You have a patient present to triage who got some sort of chemical in their eye. The test answer is that the patient should get their eye irrigated immediately with copious amounts of water even before you do a visual acuity. Now there are some exceptions to this irrigation with water, which we'll talk about later, but the general question asks, what should you do in this situation? The reason why is that you want to get whatever chemical out of their eye as soon as possible. In reality, Getting a visual acuity takes less than 30 seconds, 
and can be done way before someone can get even a bottle of saline to irrigate the eyes. So on the test, irrigate first, but in real life, I think it's more important to get that initial visual acuity so you know where you're starting from. You may disagree with this, but that's just my take. The next part is to look at the triage note and get a history of the patient's complaint. The big determination to make is whether the patient had any trauma to their eye in the form of blunt trauma, penetrating trauma, a foreign body, or a chemical burn. This is in contrast to a medical cause to the eye complaint, like a red eye or a sudden change in vision not related to trauma. Making this broad determination will help you figure out what the next step is in the evaluation. Once you go into the room, ask the patient what brought them in. Did they sustain any trauma to their eye? If they did get something into their eye, do they know what it is? This is important to ask to make sure the patient didn't get any chemicals into their eye. Next, ask if there is any eye pain, redness, or discharge. Is there any foreign body sensation? Did this happen gradually or all of a sudden? Did they wake up with any eye discharge or with their eyes matted shut? If you can't remember all of these, then just think of the usual OPQRST questions, and that should get you the information that you need. Next, ask the patient's history with a focus on the eye. The most important question is to ask whether the patient wears contact lenses at all, since this changes our management of several eye conditions. Also ask if the patient wears glasses and when the last time they had an eye exam. Next, you'll want to get a good past medical history, past surgical history, and ask about the patient's medications and allergies to get the complete picture. The next thing to do here is to do a complete eye exam. This exam involves a special set of skills that is unlike the rest of the physical exam, and it takes a lot of practice. Let's start from the external exam and work our way inwards. The first thing to do is look at both eyes and compare them side by side. Look for any differences between the eyes to include redness, injection of the conjunctiva, or sclera, or any blood in the sclera that is immediately obvious. Next, make sure to check the extraocular movements to make sure they are intact. This is very important if the patient had any blunt trauma to their face. If they're having difficulty moving their eye, then this may be an entrapped extraocular muscle that may need emergent surgery. Make sure to palpate the orbital area and check for any tenderness. The next thing to do is to check the external eye with an ophthalmoscope. First, check pupil reactivity, then use the light to get a closer look at the sclera, conjunctiva, iris, and pupil. Look for any bleeding in the sclera. This is called a subconjunctival hemorrhage, and we'll talk about this later. Make sure to look for hyphema, which is blood that layers in the center behind the lens. Once you have looked externally, don't neglect the lids. Foreign bodies can hide in the lids, so make sure to avert them and take a look. This is best done with a cotton swab that you should have in your exam room. If you think the patient has a corneal abrasion or any sort of trauma to the eye, my practice is to take a cotton swab, moistened with a little bit of saline, and wipe the inside of the eyelid whether I see a foreign body or not. I do this because a lot of people have difficulty in averting their eyelids, and some foreign bodies may be so small that you can't see them. This makes sure that you address the possibility of a foreign body, even if you can't avert the patient's eyelid or you can't see the foreign body. Let's talk quickly about topical anesthesia for the eye. Eye trauma can be incredibly painful 
and patients can be in extreme amounts of distress and in a lot of pain. The best way to help 95% of these patients is to give them anesthetic eye drops, and this will really help them almost instantaneously. You may have to put these drops in before you even examine the eye because the patient will be in so much pain. Most EDs have tetracaine or preparacaine. You can put one to two drops in the patient's eye, and it will usually make them feel so much better. It can really make a dramatic difference. This is the time when you may have to coach the patient by talking to them calmly so they will let you near their eye to put the drops in. Make sure to warn the patient that the drops will sting a little when they first go in, but reassure the patient that they will feel a lot better once the drops kick in. If the patient responds well to the anesthetic drops, then this is a pretty reliable sign that they have some sort of issue with their cornea since that is a highly innervated part of the eye. The next step is to do a fundoscopic exam. This can be incredibly difficult in the ED, but the pan-optic ophthalmoscope makes this a lot easier. I won't review the nuts and bolts of the fundoscopic exam because it just doesn't translate well over a podcast. If you go to embasic.org, I will post the best YouTube videos I can find on how to do a good fundoscopic exam. This is something that you just have to practice a lot to get good at. For the fundoscopic exam, some things you are looking for are papilledema and signs of central retinal artery occlusion and central retinal vein occlusion. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. The next part of the exam is the slit lamp exam. While slit lamp exam probably isn't necessary if the patient has classic goopy conjunctivitis and doesn't wear contacts, when you're starting out in EM, you should be doing a slit lamp exam on every patient with an eye complaint. You need to practice these exams as much as possible so you can get good at them. If you're a medical student or resident, I highly recommend arranging an ophthalmology rotation so you can get good at the slit lamp exam. Even if you can only get one or two week rotation, a lot of people have told me that it made them a lot more comfortable with doing the slit lamp exam. I was not able to, do, to arrange a rotation like this in medical school, and I wish that I had. So if you have the chance, do an optho rotation and focus on the outpatient part instead of the surgery, if that is possible. Once again, I won't review the slit lamp exam here because that is something that's much easier to do over a video. I will post some good how-to videos from YouTube on how to do this exam. I do have a few tips about how to take care of the slit lamp. First, make sure to turn off the machine when you aren't using it so the bulb doesn't burn out. Nothing is more frustrating than needing a slit lamp and finding a burned out light. Next, when you're done, lock the slit lamp down so it doesn't fly over the place when it's moved. If you don't do this, the optics can get damaged. The fluorescein exam is the next part and it can be done before or after the slit lamp exam. This is a fluorescent dye that will take up with any defects in the cornea or globe. To do the fluorescein exam, first make sure that the patient doesn't have their contacts in because the fluorescein can permanently stain contact lenses. Next, unwrap the strip and give the patient a paper towel to put under their eye. Have the patient open their eye and pull down on their lower lid. If the patient wears contacts, they will be much more comfortable with putting eye drops in, but those that don't may need some coaching. Place the fluorescein strip directly above the patient's eye and drip saline onto the strip and let it roll into the patient's eye. You only need for a drop or two of fluorescein to get into the patient's eye, and you usually don't need to physically touch the patient's eye with the fluorescein strip. The only time you would be doing this is to look for Seidel sign. This is when you have an open globe from some sort of penetrating or blunt trauma. This is when you put topical anesthetic in the patient's eye 
then paint fluorescein across the anterior portion of the eye. If you see a river of fluorescein flowing, then this is a sign of an open globe. This represents vitreous humor that is flowing out of the globe. However, the few times I've seen Seidel's sign, I was able to do it without physically painting on fluorescein onto the eyeball. So try dripping the fluorescein in first, and if you're suspicious for an open globe, follow that by actually painting a little bit of fluorescein onto the anterior portion of the eye. Once the fluorescein is in, use a woods lamp or fluorescent black light to light up the cornea. What you're looking for are opaque areas on the cornea that look dense. These represent corneal abrasions. A little scattered uptake here and there doesn't represent a corneal abrasion if it is present in both eyes. If you have any doubts, have the patient blink a few times to redistribute the fluorescein. And if the uptake persists, is dense, and asymmetric, then this is probably a corneal abrasion. A vertical area of uptake usually represents a foreign body that is stuck in the upper eyelid. If you find a corneal abrasion, remember to check out the upper eyelid and lower eyelid and swab it with a moistened cotton swab, just like we talked about before. The final part of the eye exam is to measure intraocular pressure. However, always make sure to check for an open globe with a Seidel's test before you do a Tonopen. If you have any doubts as to an open globe, then don't measure IOP and consult an ophthalmologist. If you know that you have an open globe, once again, don't do an IOP measurement and call your ophthalmologist. Measuring IOP is especially important if the patient has severe trauma to the eye or has any concern for acute angle glaucoma. Briefly, acute angle glaucoma is usually a disease of older patients with known eye issues that present with sudden unilateral eye pain that gets worse with pupil dilation. To check the IOP, you use a Tona pen, although this is probably a brand name. Before you go using a Tona pen, just make sure that you've numbed up the patient's eye with some sort of topical anesthetic. Now for the Tona pen. The first and often most frustrating step is calibrating it. First, you'll need to put on a cover, which should be stored with the Tona pen. Then make sure to turn on the Tona pen with the t- tip pointing down. When the device says up, then rapidly turn the Tona pen upwards towards the ceiling and wait for it to say good. Now I've just described how to calibrate the most common brand of Tona pen, so the calibration process may be different for different models of Tona pens. After the Tona pen is calibrated, and you've put topical anesthetic in the patient's eye, pull open the patient's eyelids as much as possible. Place the Tona pen perpendicular to the patient's cornea. Once you are positioned correctly, rapidly tap the tip of the Tona pen on the patient's cornea. You'll probably hear some rapid, quiet beeps. Keep tapping the cornea until you hear a loud, single beep. This indicates that you've gotten a good reading. You may have to repeat this process several times to get a good result, and it can be frustrating. Like the slit lamp, this is something that takes practice, so make sure to practice it a lot. Make sure to check both eyes and compare the measurements. A large difference between readings can indicate an ocular emergency. Normal intraocular pressure, or IOP, is between 10 and 20. Finally, remember to do a complete head-to-toe exam to make sure you don't miss anything. This goes double for the neuro exam because some neuro complaints can overlap with eye complaints, especially if there is double vision without trauma or headache with an eye complaint. So make sure to do a complete exam and don't get tunnel vision. Now let's review all this quickly before we move into the differential diagnosis and treatment of eye complaints. 
First, remember that visual acuity is the vital sign of the eye. Make sure this is done in triage or do it yourself with an eye chart or an app on your phone. If the patient doesn't have their glasses or contacts, you can use a pinhole viewer or use an 18 gauge needle and make a hole in a file card and have the patient look through that. The only thing that should delay a visual acuity is to irrigate the eye if the patient has a chemical burn. Ask the patient what brought them in and whether they had any trauma or got anything into their eye. Ask about any vision changes, double vision, or eye pain. Ask about the use of contact lenses or glasses and take a complete past history, especially paying attention to their past medical surgical history as well as any medications, including blood thinners. Do a complete external exam that examines the sclera, conjunctiva, iris, and pupils. Check the extraocular movements and palpate the orbits. Check pupil reactivity with a light and do a fundoscopic exam. Make sure to avert the upper eyelid and swab the inside of the upper and lower eyelid with a moistened cotton swab if you have any suspicion for a foreign body. Do a slit lamp exam on every patient with an eye complaint until you get good at it, and even then it's still a good idea to do one on every patient. Make sure to turn the slit lamp off when you are done and lock it in place. Look for a YouTube video for a tutorial on how to use the slit lamp exam. I will post some links at embase.org. If the patient has a lot of eye pain, put in a topical anesthetic like tetracaine or preparacaine. Do a fluorescein exam, especially if you suspect the patient has a corneal abrasion, eye trauma, or a foreign body. Place a fluorescein strip above the patient's eye, put a few drops of saline on the strip, and let that roll into the eye. Look at the eye with a woods lamp or fluorescent black light. You are looking for a dense, opaque uptake of fluorescein, which represents a corneal abrasion. If you see a stream of fluorescein flowing from the eye, then this is a positive Seidel sign, and it represents an open globe injury. This is the one time you may have to paint on the fluorescein onto the eyeball, but it will probably be evident without doing that. Finally, the tone of pen checks for intraocular pressure that can be elevated in severe eye or orbital trauma or acute angle glaucoma. Make sure to calibrate the tone of pen by turning it on, pointing the tip down to the floor, wait for it to say up, and then turn it upwards toward the ceiling. Once it is calibrated, and after you've applied the topical anesthetic, hold the patient's eye open, hold the tone of pen tip perpendicular to the eye, and tap lightly until you hear a long, loud beep. Make sure to check both eyes so that you can compare them, and keep in mind that a normal IOP is between 10 and 20. Now let's talk about the differential diagnosis of eye complaints. We'll talk about diagnosing each one, and some of the treatments that we use. Let's talk first about eye trauma, then we'll talk about some eye infections, and then finish up with talking about some eye conditions that are mostly found in older patients, like acute angle glaucoma. Let's talk first about corneal abrasions. We make this diagnosis a lot in the ED, and it's a common chief complaint. It can be caused by any sort of trauma to the eye, or any foreign bodies that manage to get lodged in the eye. We already talked about using topical anesthesia and fluorescein to make the diagnosis, so let's talk about treatment. There are two main treatments, topical antibiotics and pain control. The theory for using topical antibiotics is that they help to prevent superinfection, but there isn't a lot of great evidence for this. However, it is something that is pretty common practice. If the patient doesn't wear contacts, you can prescribe erythromycin ointment four times a day for three to five days. Erythromycin ointment is preferred for kids because it is super difficult to get drops into a kid's eye. This will provide some lubrication to the eye 
in addition to the antibiotic coverage. If you want to use an eye drop, you can use polymyxin trimethoprim, aka polytrim, ciprofloxacin, aka, aka siloxan, or ofloxacin, aka ocuflox. These drops are also given four times a day for three to five days. For patients who wear contact lenses, you need to have a much more aggressive approach to avoid the formation of corneal ulcers or infectious keratitis, which can cause permanent vision loss if not properly treated. Before you do the slit lamp exam, you need to take a good look with an ophthalmoscope at the patient's cornea to look for any white spots on the cornea, which represent infiltrates. If they have any of these findings, they need to see an ophthalmologist immediately. If there are no infiltrates, you can treat the patient with any antibiotic that covers pseudomonas. This includes ofloxacin, ciprofloxacin, and tobramycin. Erythromycin is not an appropriate choice in these patients because it doesn't cover pseudomonas. These patients should usually get next-day follow-up in the ED or with an ophthalmologist to be checked for corneal infiltrates to make sure it doesn't develop and threaten the patient's sight. Finally, make sure to tell patients who wear contacts that they cannot wear them until they are finished antibiotic therapy and they have been seen by an ophthalmologist. For pain control, you would think that we could send patients home with a bottle of tetracaine, but this isn't a good idea. The worry here is that patients will apply it so often that it will impair hearing of their corneal epithelium. So limit the use of tetracaine or propericaine to the ED only. That being said, there is some relatively new evidence to say that diluted propericaine is safe for corneal abrasions. However, this was from a small pilot study that had extremely close follow-up by ophthalmology and it will need further confirmation before it becomes part of our standard practice. For pain control, I usually prescribe ibuprofen and a short course of hydrocodone or oxycodone with acetaminophen, a.k.a. Vicodin or Percocet. Patients usually get significant relief from the topical anesthetics that they get in the ED, and this usually lasts 4-6 to six hours, which will allow them time for the oral medications to kick in. Finally, just a quick FYI that we used to patch patients who had corneal abrasions, but that has not been shown to be helpful and may actually be harmful, so it's not really something you want to do. Now that we've covered corneal abrasions, let's talk about subconjunctival hemorrhage. This isn't re- related to trauma, but it's a condition that you will see a lot in the ED. Most patients come in thinking that something is seriously wrong with them, but this is usually a benign diagnosis. The patient will report that either they or someone else noticed that their sclera had bleeding in it. There shouldn't be any eye pain associated with subconjunctival hemorrhage. If there is pain, that suggests something more serious. Subconjunctival hemorrhages can be completely spontaneous, or it may be associated with severe coughing or straining during a bowel movement or childbirth, to name a few. You'll want to do your usual eye exam and make sure that nothing else is going on, but if the patient's vision is normal, there was no history of trauma, and there's nothing concerning during your fluorescein and slit limb exam, you can discharge the patient with reassurance that the blood will slowly resorb in a matter of weeks. If the patient is on warfarin, aka Coumadin, you'll want to check an INR to make sure that it isn't sky high and address that as necessary. If the patient is getting frequent subconjunctival hemorrhages, then they should probably be worked up as an outpatient for a bleeding disorder. Otherwise, this is a totally benign disorder that just needs some reassurance. Now let's talk about hyphema. This is when blood collects in the anterior chamber of the eye. 
it looks like a small crescent of blood that is layered at the bottom of the eye. This is usually caused by trauma, but it can be spontaneous in patients with sickle cell disease. If this was caused by trauma with an open globe, then you need an emergent evaluation by an ophthalmologist. Make sure that the patient is calm, has the head of their bed elevated to at least 30 degrees, and cover the eye with an eye shield to prevent further injury. The patient may need to be admitted if the hyphema is large or is caused by sickle cell disease. Certain patients may be able to be managed as outpatients if the hyphema is small and they are able to keep the, their head elevated and follow all the other directions at home. About 5% of patients will require surgery to correct the hyphema. Either way, you'll be talking to an ophthalmologist about this patient. Let's talk a little about severe eye and orbital trauma. This can cause ocular muscle entrapment and retrobulbar hematoma. We talked a little about entrapment before. If the patient has double vision or difficulties with extraocular movements, then you should get a CT to look for fractures and get an ophthalmology consult. You'll probably need to talk to ENT as well. The management of these injuries is usually toss-up between the two specialties, and sometimes even oral maxillary facial surgeons get involved as well. So make sure to call whomever is on call for facial trauma at your institution or transfer as appropriate for management. Retrobulbar hematoma is an extreme ocular emergency, and we have to act on it quickly. This is where facial trauma causes a buildup of blood behind the eye. This puts pressure on the optic nerve, and if it isn't relieved quickly, the patient can permanently lose sight in that eye. You should suspect this in any patient with severe facial trauma, especially if they have a lot of swelling around the eye. And don't miss this in your uh, comatose trauma patients either. Once you have ruled out an open globe injury, you'll want to gently press on the eyeball or orbit. If it feels firm and tense compared to the other eye in the setting of trauma, then an immediate lateral canthotomy is indicated. This is done to release the pressure behind the eye and give it room to swell so you don't cut off blood supply to the optic nerve. If you have any doubts, you can check intraocular pressure to look for a big difference between the two eyes, but only if you can do it rapidly because this is really a clinical diagnosis. I will talk about how to do a lateral canthotomy in the bonus section at the end of this lecture, but let me stress one point. If you have any concern that the patient has a retrobulbar hematoma, then the right thing to do is to cut first and ask questions later. No one will fault you for an inappropriate lateral canthotomy. It's not a big deal if you do it and the, the patient doesn't have a retrobulbar hematoma. Most of the time, the ophthalmologist will let these heal on their own, and they rarely require surgery to fix if you do the lateral canthotomy correctly. However, if you delay or don't do it, then the patient can permanently lose their sight, and this is very bad. Finally, chemical burns to the eye can be very serious. Someone may ask you whether alkalines or acids are worse for your eye. The answer is alkalis because they saponify phospholipids in your eye, and this is no bueno. Often patients will be exposed to chemicals at their work or their home, so you want to ask them what they think they got in their eye. The next step is rapid and copious irrigation with a few exceptions. You'll want to get the patient to a sink or some sort of irrigation device and flush out their eye with liters of water or saline. You'll know you are done when a pH strip applied directly to the eye is neutral at a pH of 6.5 to 7.5. You'll want to give the patient some topical anesthesia to help with the pain of the burn and to help them tolerate irrigation. If you have a Morgan's lens, use it, 
Otherwise, you can jerry-rig an irrigator with a bag of saline attached to a nasal cannula placed over the bridge of the nose. This will allow the saline to flow right into the eyes, but you need to make sure that the patient keeps their eyes open for this to work. These patients all need emergent opto-consultation, but don't delay getting irrigation to the patient's eye. There are a few cases where you're not going to want to immediately irrigate the eye after a chemical burn. If the patient was exposed to dry lime, sulfuric acid from drain cleaners, or elemental metals, then they should not be immediately irrigated because contact with water may cause further burning and damage. In addition, the patient may need hazmat decontamination if the exposure was significant. If you have any doubt, consult a guide to chemicals or the material safety data sheet for that chemical. You can find these online, but if the exposure was job-related, the patient's company should have the MSDS on any chemicals that they use. One last thing to say about eye trauma is to be careful not to miss any foreign bodies in the eye. Be especially careful of this if the patient was working with a grinder and may have gotten something into their eye. If you have any doubt about a foreign body being deeper in the eye, then you should get a non-contrast CT of the orbits to look for foreign bodies. CT will pick up just about any foreign body that has gotten into the eye or show air in the orbit that would suggest a penetrating injury. If you are good with ultrasound, you could probably start there, and Rosen suggests that ultrasound may be more sensitive than CT for foreign bodies. However, CT can tell you if there was any damage by a foreign body, so you should probably use both tests to get the full picture. Now let's talk about eye infections. Conjunctivitis is a common eye complaint that we see in the ED. Patients will usually complain of eye redness, watery eyes, and discharge. They may complain of their eyes being glued shut when they wake up in the morning. On exam, they will have injected sclera and some sort of discharge. They may also complain of their eyes being glued shut when they wake up in the morning. On exam, they will have injected sclera and some sort of discharge. Usually we think that the eye being glued shut means that this is bacterial conjunctivitis instead of viral conjunctivitis, but studies have shown, haven't shown great correlation. Viral conjunctivitis usually has watery discharge, whereas bacterial conjunctivitis usually has purulent discharge, but the two often overlap. As far as treatment, we usually err on the side of treatment with antibiotics in the ED because it can be difficult to differentiate the two based on symptoms alone. You can use the same antibiotics that you use for corneal abrasions, erythromycin or polytrim for most patients, with ciprofloxacin or another fluoroquinolone for those who wear contact lenses to cover pseudomonas. Patients should use antibiotics for 3-5 to five days. Also, just like corneal abrasions, tell the patients with contact lenses to throw out their current pair of lenses and not to wear them until they are asymptomatic and done with their antibiotics. As a further precaution, they should also probably have some sort of follow-up with an ophthalmologist as well, although some may argue that this would be overkill. One particularly bad eye infection that you have to be on the lookout for is hyperacute bacterial conjunctivitis caused by gonorrhea. This conjunctivitis can occur only 12 hours after ahem, uh, exposure and will rapidly progress to copious purulent discharge. So if the patient has severe symptoms with lots of discharge, that occurred very suddenly, keep this on your differential. This infection is an ocular emergency and requires emergent opto-evaluation and hospitalization for systemic and topical antibiotics, as well as observation to prevent perforation.
One final eye infection that you can't miss is herpes simplex infection of the eye. This will present as pain in the orbital and maxillary area in the V2 distribution. The patient may or may not have vesicles on their skin around the eye. In these patients, it is important to do a fluorescein exam to look for a dendritic lesion on their eye. This will look like a fern leaf, and this needs to be treated aggressively by an ophthalmologist to avoid losing their sight. Now let's talk about some eye conditions that usually affect the older populations. Let's talk first about acute angle glaucoma. This is usually an older patient who complains of intense eye pain. The classic scenario is a patient who goes into a dark place like a movie theater. Their pupil dilates because it is dark, and this causes the iris to bulge out and block the flow of vitreous humor from the posterior chamber of the eye to the anterior chamber of the eye at the canal schlem. This blockage of vitreous humor elevates the intraocular pressure and causes sudden vision loss and eye pain. You'll want to check the IOP in these patients, and if it is found to be elevated, immediately start medications to lower IOP. These medications include timolol eye drops and pilocarpine eye drops, which both work to lower IOP. With the guidance of an ophthalmologist, you may also give steroid eye drops in the form of prednisolone and acetazolamide IV for severe cases. Now let's talk about central retinal artery occlusion. This is usually a painless unilateral loss of vision that occurs suddenly and takes away most or all of the patient's vision. This is usually caused by an acute clot in the central retinal artery, so your patients with AFib or anything else that causes abnormal clotting or emboli are at risk for this. On fundoscopic exam, the classic finding is a cherry red spot on the macula or whitening of the retina. The treatment for this includes massaging the eye with your thumb to possibly dislodge the clot, treatment with topical medications to lower eye pressure such as timolol, acetazolamide, or IV mannitol. You can also have the patient rebreathe into a paper bag to increase their PCO2 to increase retinal blood flow. As a last resort, a paracentesis of the anterior chamber can be performed where you stick a needle into the patient's anterior chamber to get fluid out, but this is obviously best done by an ophthalmologist. Some studies have also described using IV TPA to dissolve the clot, but this is far from standard of care. The flip side to central retinal artery occlusion is central retinal vein occlusion. Central retinal vein occlusion also causes sudden painless vision loss. On fundoscopic exam, you will see what is called blood and thunder engorged veins that are really dilated. Like central retinal artery occlusion, treatment for central retinal venous occlusion also includes lowering the intraocular pressure with timolol or cetazolamide. However, most of these cases will require some sort of surgical intervention by the ophthalmologist, so it's important to get them on board early. Retinal detachment is something that you may see in trauma, but it also comes up in older patients as well. You'll suspect this if the patient has a sudden onset of floaters and spots in their vision. This is an ocular emergency, and patients need to be seen ASAP by ophthalmologists for management. Let me just mention something here. You can use ocular ultrasound to help you make a lot of these diagnoses, including retinal detachment, retropobular hematoma, and others. I won't talk about these here, because while I've done some of these scans, I am far from an expert. What I will do is refer you to the ultrasound podcast and website, which has some great podcasts and videos, as well as an app that can show you how to do these exams. So that's all I have for now on eye complaints. 
I know this was a long episode, but we had a lot to cover, and I don't claim to have covered it all. I won't do a rapid-fire review here because there's just so much info to review, so if you have any issues or can't remember everything, then you know I would suggest taking a listen to the second half of the episode. Now I'd like to make an announcement. I just completed some screencasts for an awesome new board review project. John Schonert from emchatter.com and Bob Stunts from the ER Res podcast have teamed up to create emergencyboardreview.com. This is a website that has a collection of free screencasts that will review bread and butter EM topics that are relevant to the in-service exam, the board exam, and the recertifying exams. These screencasts are free and available on iTunes and at their website at emergencyboardreview.com. I helped out with three screencasts that cover high-yield topics in orthopedics, so make sure to check it out. As always, I will post a link on embase.org. That's all I have for now for this episode. Stay tuned for a bonus section on how to do a lateral canthotomy. As always, please email me with your questions or comments, post a comment on embase.org, and follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off. Now it's time for the bonus section. Here we're going to talk about how to do a lateral canthotomy. To quickly review, you'll want to consider this procedure anytime the patient has severe facial, ocular, or orbital trauma. This can cause a retrobulbar hematoma that can compress the optic nerve and cause permanent vision loss. Suspect this condition if the eyeball is tense or if there's proptosis or a large difference in IOP in the setting of trauma. If you have any doubts, cut first and ask questions later. You won't be faulted for doing an unnecessary lateral canthotomy, but you will be faulted for not doing a lateral canthotomy that was indicated. To do this procedure, you'll need some lidocaine with epinephrine, as well as some basic equipment. However, if you only have plain lidocaine, that'll work as well. At a minimum, you will need a hemostat and a pair of scissors. If you have iris scissors, use those but otherwise you can really just use scissors from a standard laceration tray. Iris scissors are better because they are smaller and get in there better than regular scissors, but time is of the essence, so don't spend time looking for iris scissors. The first step is to numb up the lateral area with some lidocaine with epinephrine. Procedural sedation with ketamine may be helpful here as well, but if you can keep the patient awake, that is better because they can tell you if their vision is any better and time is of the essence. If the patient is fiddling around a lot, then it's time for the ketamine. Once you have the lateral socket area numbed up with some lidocaine, take the hemostat, place them with the clamp area on the lateral canthus of the eye, and clamp them down for 30 to 60 seconds. This will devascularize the area and make for a cleaner lateral canthotomy with less bleeding. Remove the clamp and then stip the most lateral part of the eye. Make sure to go deep. The most common mistake is that you aren't aggressive enough with your cut and you don't actually snip the tendon that holds the eye in place. After you have snipped laterally, you will most likely have to release the superior and inferior tendons as well. For this, aim your scissors upwards as far laterally as possible and cut the superior tendon. Then aim the scissors downwards and cut the inferior tendon. If you do this correctly, you should feel solid pop as you cut through the tendon. If there was a retrobulbar hematoma, you may see blood trickle out around the tendons. After you've done your cuts, you'll want to recheck the firmness of the patient's eyeball and intraocular pressure if you checked it before. 
you should also ask the patient about their vision and if it is any better. If you have any doubts as to whether it worked, go in again and make a more aggressive cut. As long as you stay laterally and off the eyeball, you can't cause a lot of damage, so be aggressive. So let's review this real quick rapid fire. If you have any doubts as to a retrobulbar hematoma, do the lateral canthotomy. I can't stress this enough. Numb up the lateral area of the eye with lidocaine with epinephrine and use procedural sedation as necessary if the patient can't or won't cooperate with the procedure. Place a hemostat on the lateral portion of the eye with the clamps perpendicular to the area and clamp down and underneath the tendon. Wait 30 to 60 seconds for the area to devascularize and remove the clamp. Reach underneath the tendon with the iris scissors or regular scissors and snip the lateral tendon. Then move on to the superior tendon by pointing the scissors upwards and cutting that tendon. Follow this by cutting the inferior tendon. Be aggressive with your cuts. Reevaluate the eyeball's firmness and IOP, and if you have any doubts as to whether you did it right, go back in and cut more aggressively. So that's it for lateral canthotomy and eye complaints. So until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.